So today we're going to be reading, we're talking about uh, what are often just called histories. Um, and even within that, it's maybe worth saying we're going to be looking at things that treat histories slightly differently. Mm-hmm. There are some books in the Bible that treat themselves or present themselves almost like formal record books. We would call them books like um, the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles mm-hmm. that are very much like records of the, the official government actions of this administration and this administration, um, and will often make references to other court records at the end of, like, at the end of so-and-so's reign. And then there's other books that tell uh, stories of historical figures, uh, but they are told almost like as personal narratives. So we'll mm-hmm. talk in this category, we put in Ruth and Esther and things like that, who tell stories and present themselves as this happened in such a, such a time period, but feel different, definitely different than, say, what Chronicles or Kings uh, or the Books of Samuel are doing. And bridging those very uh, uh, methodical uh, historical record books and the uh, uh, formative core stories of the Torah from last time are these bridge stories Joshua and Judges that sort of like get us from, you know, when we were back in the wilderness to, oh, how do we get into the land kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of weird bridge things where miracles happen still with some frequency, and sometimes the miracles are meant to be evocative of the really big miracles back in the old days. So like in Joshua's story, there's not a parting of the Red Sea, but there's a parting of the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. And it's meant to be sort of, uh, you know, yeah, same God who's there in Egypt with us now. Um, and then... By the time you get to the histories like First Kings and Chronicles, there are occasional stories of wonders and deeds that are things, but most of the time it's more like so-and-so tried to make this foreign alliance. Not a good idea. So-and-so waged war. Not a good idea. So-and-so started to set up golden calves to worship at Dan and Bethel. Not a good idea. There's a lot of not a good ideas. Um, and so that's that's the, the genre that we're going to be looking at today. Can, can either of you help out? Like, What are some definitive things to know about history? Or how do we treat this different than say, reading commandments, or even like the family campfire stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that we talked about last time. What, what, what's important to know about how you read these stories? Actually, the first thing is that these stories are on a much grander scale. Okay. You know, so in Genesis, you know, when we're talking about Abraham and Isaac, and until so you got to uh, Joseph in Egypt, I mean, it's just, it's purely a family story. Okay. You know, you've got Abraham, his one son, and then his 12 sons. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and while like the book of Joshua is named Joshua because that is the ruler of that nation after Moses dies mm-hmm. and the one that brings him into the promised land, the story doesn't really focus around Joshua. Sure, mm-hmm. He's just kind of like... He's just a main, important guy. Uh, yeah, he's, he's a very important, very main character, but the story is much larger than mm-hmm. just sure. his life story. Where like those 12, 15 chapters of Genesis that focused on Joshua were mostly about Joshua. Mm-hmm. 
now we're, we're talking about a nation. And this may be helpful to remember, too, that while we're used to treating these books like they um, were written down all at once, as like somebody decided to sit down and write, I'm going to write the book of Joshua today, probably what's more likely is you've got stories about Joshua being mm-hmm. told and retold as oral tradition, and then other stories about that subsequent generation of settling down in the land, and as those stories at some point said, we should be writing this down, um, those get kind of fixed together, and... Again, in, in Hebrew, they don't call this the book of Joshua. They would be the opening few words of the book in, in Hebrew. Um, but we, in English, need to come up with names for these and say, well, yeah, it's mostly about Joshua you know, and some other stuff. It just it yeah. feels less professional to call it the book of Joshua and some other stuff. So, okay, you know, Joshua. Um, same thing with, like, it's important to remember, like, Kings and Chronicles, our, our Bibles split them up. But in the original, they aren't treated like a, a first and a second with a sequel. It's the book of the book of the kings and Samuel the same way too. These are like huge tomes that, for the sake of brevity, we've split at a halfway mark because it sort of conveniently marks a part way in the story, kind of a thing. Uh, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, and as well as uh, before bookbinding was a thing, right. uh, these stories were on scrolls, and the stories were so long that they couldn't really fit on one scroll. Right. So that they uh, they were conveniently broken up at a very specific point so that if you were to lose your first scroll of kings, mm-hmm. you could just get a new first scroll of kings, and it would be the exact same. Exactly. Exactly. That it would end in the same spot, and it wouldn't be all like, oh, somehow we've lost... Uh, you know, this right. part of the story because our previous scroll included it, but then this one doesn't. So There's a point at which the helpful. actual ancient technology is a piece of what we're, why, we, mm. why our book breaks fall the way that they do. So yep. it's more about where the scroll breaks, the, the, the end of, the, of a scroll would have been, and less about this is an important you know, cliffhanger to the plot. So it's not like Luke Skywalker has just found out Darth Vader is, is his father. Spoiler alert. And now the movie ends and we have to wait for the next one. It's more like, we're coming to the end of a scroll. Let's end it here. All right, we're going to pick up with the next mm-hmm. one or the next scroll. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it, it may be also worth talking a little bit about how we hear what what the these words are. I mean, like, when you read a commandment, when you read something in the law, we might automatically jump to, oh, well, the application of this commandment is I'm supposed to do or not do the thing the commandment says. And again, we can have discussions about what commandments do or don't apply, but if I'm Joe Shmo, ancient Israelite, and I read the commandment, um, you know, don't labor on the Sabbath day, what does this verse mean to me? That's a no-brainer. Oh, I'm not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But how a history applies to me is different. It feels mm-hmm. different. And it's not. It, this is not like I read what somebody did uh, in such and such verse, and I go, oh, well, they did it, therefore I'm supposed to do it. Um, and this is true certainly of the patriarchal narratives of like uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Just because they do something doesn't mean it's a good idea. It doesn't mean that God approves of what they do. And, and at the same time, it doesn't mean that God... God isn't also able to do something through them even when they are boneheaded and sinful and wicked. So it, the way these stories have authority for us is different than, say, the way we treat a, a commandment or a piece of law or something like that. Um, so the story gets the people from, they're on the edge of the promised land at the end of Deuteronomy. God, uh, Moses sort of gives us farewell speech that is the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and 
the book of Deuteronomy sort of lays out a way of seeing the world in terms of covenant faithfulness or disobedience. And so if you follow the commandments that God is setting for you, if you keep your side of the covenant, these good things will happen. If you break the commandments and turn away from the covenant and are not faithful to God, eventually exile will happen. And that's sort of cast as like the whole, this is the terms of the relationship between Yahweh and uh, the people of Israel. Um, and you could say that much of certainly the book of Kings uh, and the books of Samuel kind of read history through that lens, and they judge kings based on did we do what the commandment said to do, or did we not do what the commandment said to do? So there's a there's I don't think this is a critical at all. Say there's an agenda to the writers of these histories. They mm-hmm. have a particular slant on judging how the kings do, and it has to do with are did this king. Uh, keep us in the covenant way of life, practicing the ways of justice and mercy that were revealed to us in the wilderness, or did this king lead us to, you know, worship our money, or worship literal other gods, or, you know, foreign alliances, or our military might, or whatever. Well, even before we get to Samuel and kings, we've got the judges. Right. Before the kings of Israel, you know, the people want some sort of leader. Uh, I believe Joshua is dead or dying, and they need somebody to kind of be in charge of them. They can then the end. Samuel is sort of the next bridge leader until they get kings, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And so, and the, and the judges are judged the same way. You know, whether they did what was right in in the eyes of God or what wasn't. Right. And. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a nifty refrain that keeps yep. popping uh-huh. up in judges again yeah. and again. Like, um, you know, they have a judge for a while who leads the people and then dies, and the people continue doing what God wants them to do. And then all of a sudden, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs and or whomever. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Whoever, the whoever day. the enemy is. And then um, they were subject to these people for so many years. And then God saw fit to rise, raise up a new judge. And it's right. whoever is the next judge. And then the people turn back to God because there's a new judge to lead them. And then that person dies. And then, again, they the did evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, right. what's good in their own eyes. Right. And that's yes. the key. It's their own eyes versus what God has told them and God has commanded them. Yep. No, this is what's going to be good for you. Mm-hmm. These are the boundaries I've set for you, and I've set them not so you can't have fun. I've set them to keep you safe. Yeah. And, and there's this sense, there is, even the final concluding line of Judges is, there's no king in, the, in, in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. So the book of Judges is very clearly pro-king, and sees yeah. the solution to this problem is what we need is a king who will enforce God's commandments for us. And interestingly enough, the early, well, the book of Samuel, especially 1 Samuel, is not pro-king. Like, this is one of those things I think is an important <laughs> piece to note. The, the Bible itself often has multiple voices at the same time. Sometimes they are in harmony, and sometimes you get a weird dissonant chord, and this is one of those times. Mm. So on the question of what's the Bible's position on should we have a king or not, or should ancient Israel have a king or not, the question, the answer is really, it depends on who you ask in the Bible. The book of Judges thinks that, oh, the problem is we don't have a strong enough central leader who will make us obey, and the book of Samuel goes, no, that's a dangerous move to make because if you get a king, the king is going to turn you into a new version of Pharaoh's Egypt and Mm -hmm. the king is going to conscript your sons of the army and make your children have to work for him Mm -hmm. and you're going to get taxed and all your wealth is going to be taken away from you to build palaces and armies and things like that and you're well on your way to a new version of Pharaoh's Egypt. And I think there's some point probably in Samuel where um, God says, no, I will not give you a king because 
I'm your king. Actually, yeah, that story is one of my favorites because it it starts out with Samuel being mopey to God. So the people complain to Samuel and say, we don't like you. You're not being a good enough leader. You're just a mere prophet. We want a king like the other nations. It's that we want what everybody else has. And Samuel goes moping to God and goes, God, I feel so bad. They rejected me from being their leader. <laughs> That's exactly how I'm sure it said. He sounded like Droopy Dog. Um and, and to me, this is a definitive moment about who God is, too, because God's response to Samuel is, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Um, and that means that, like, whatever else you can say about God, God is rejectable, vulnerable, and woundable. Um, that, to me, seems like a pretty big deal. Instead mm-hmm. of just God is the toughest thing or biggest thing in the room or God's imperfect, like, nope, at the core of Israel's memory is a God who is woundable, is a God who is rejectable, and yet doesn't give up on the people. The thing that totally blows my mind is God's then response to Samuel is, give the people the thing that they ask for. I will choose to work through them having a king anyhow. Um, and I mean, like, the rest of our story as Christians is, yeah, eventually one of those kings, you know, has a descendant name is Jesus, who turns out to be the savior of the world. Um, but, like, this idea of a, of a God who says, I, they're rejecting me. I'm, I wasn't good enough for them, so, okay, fine. Um, but the rest of the book of Samuel is... If you get this thing that you ask for, you're not going to like it. it. It, to me, is a reminder that sometimes the absolute worst thing God can do to you is to give you exactly what you ask for. And sure enough, the yeah. first king is Saul, who turned like it like starts off as like a pretty good, awesome guy who God is all like, "Oh, yep, this is my dude. This is my dude, you guys." And then eventually, he turns out to be human, and yeah. he he's not a good king. And it's interesting, when he first gets picked, Saul is, the top two qualifications, according to the book of Samuel, are that he's tall and good looking. <laughs> it's like, literally the people, like, he, they chose Saul because he stood head and shoulders. So, like, it is literally, he's the tallest guy, and so they're thinking he will make a good leader. Probably because, honestly, their picture of a king is someone who actually leads the people in the battle, and we need someone who's a strong, formidable warrior on the battlefield. Um, but this was an era where being tall and Decent, I mean, like, not that that has changed, really. We still sort of assume, ah, you'll be the best leader because you're tall and good-looking. Well, there is a political science theory that that's why JFK was elected over his opponent because it was the first presidential debate debate that was televised. Mm -hmm. And JFK, as we all know, was a handsome-looking dude. And Nixon was getting over a cold and just didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, like, there, there's something to that. A- anyway, Saul is in top two qualifications were, were, were not character things. And uh, when he gets uh, replaced, the, the next king is David. We could spend a whole day on all the sagas of David and how he gets introduced. But, but even he is introduced as a handsome boy who plays music very well. Right, except that the very first time we meet him, he's the runt kid who doesn't even yeah. make an appearance, right? So yeah. Samuel goes to Jesse's house and God says to... Nope. Yeah, nope. yeah. Nope. God says, nope. Samuel, one of these sons is the king. And the, when the first oldest son comes by and, and Samuel's like, oh, he's a strong young man. And God goes, nope, don't look. And God's exact quote is something like in, in Kings, don't look at the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, that kind of thing. Now, David is a mixed bag too, because while there are moments of deep faithfulness uh, for David, there's also lots of terrible things that David is responsible for. Um, and uh, not only uh, is there the uh, abuse of power that happens when he uh, forces himself on Bathsheba, and, and there's this whole other scandal there, and the cover-up that makes this even worse, that now it's not just, I've had an affair, or I've abused my power and taken advantage of Bathsheba, but now I want to kill 
her husband, uh, and, and, and like there's all sorts of scandal there. On top of that, while he is remembered as a, a warrior and a, a, a guy who expands the, the borders of Israel, it's the beginning of that slippery slope toward becoming a new version of Pharaoh's Egypt, because the, the, the more you sort of creep toward uh, it's my it's my strength, it's my military power, it's our wealth that makes us strong. Very quickly, you're losing that vision of the people who trust God will provide manna day by day. And there's this, there's that other ambiguity that David is the one who, in the story, wants to build a temple for God. And like in his idea, this is like, oh, this is great. I'm going to show God how much I love him and how thankful I am. And I'm going to build God this awesome temple. And God's response is, did I ever say I needed to live in a house? I mean, like, I, I get to mean well, but I don't need to live in a house. You're gonna, I know what's going to happen to you people. You, you're knuckleheads. You're going to think I live in the house, and I don't live somewhere else. And you're going to think as long as you control the house, you control me. Um, so, no, you're not going to be... And then, then comes this moment where God says, I, you're not going to build me a house. I'll build you a house, and I'll build a dynasty, and one of David's descendants will be on the throne ever after. And then it's David's son, Solomon, who becomes the one who builds the temple. Um, and again, there's sort of a, is this a good moment or not? There's a sense in which, good, we've got this place to worship God and offer sacrifices. And on the other hand, there is this minority report of like, be careful, this is, with the danger, Will Robinson, we could really easily abuse this. Um, and the way Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple is remembered is like that he totally gets it. Oh, we know you fill all creation, God. We know you're bigger than this temple. Uh, but anyway, remember everybody, I'm the one who built this temple. <laughs> um, and it, it just seems like there's like this foreshadowing, this warning of like, I get it everybody. You, you think that because we built this temple that God, God's in our back pocket. Please, please don't think that. Um, and there's this danger from that point on as Israel trends toward becoming more and more of a new version of Pharaoh's Egypt. The kings become more and more about how they look in the eyes of other nations and how they are judged along the lines of how much wealth or power or status we have. Um, and that's part of why the voices of Kings and Chronicles are an important minority report voice of like, we don't judge based on how wealthy we were, but uh, the judgment is on were we faithful to God or not. That, that to me seems important by way of application. Um, and like I say, well, it's different how you apply what these history, how you apply what does this mean to my life compared to like reading a commandment. But it seems to me that the, the biblical writers are not apologetic about saying we don't care about how good the economy was when so-and-so was a leader. That's secondary to did this person practice justice and uh, were we faithful to the character of God in these days. So people that the books of Kings and Chronicles write off as terrible wicked leaders actually presided over great prosperity, materially speaking. So like uh, figures like when the kingdom splits in the north and south, kings like Jeroboam in, uh, in the north uh, and his uh, later descendant, Jeroboam II, um, like they reigned over times of prosperity and relative peace. Uh, the Dow Jones was in record territory in those days, um, and yet the biblical writers are like, no, these weren't good kings because you don't judge the success of a leader based on how good the economy is doing. It's a question of character, of how, how are we taking care of the neighbors God has placed in our midst. Um, that seems a, a, a radical kind of move to make, and maybe we don't give the Bible credit enough for being radical and how it judges in that in that way, and we just sort of assume, no, leaders are based on how good the economy is doing when they're ruling, or how many wars you've won. Other things that seem important about the histories, whether these, these ones we've talked about, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, uh, or other history stories that we put in there, like Ruth and Esther. Well, see, that's the thing. We, we've been talking about this 
period of Israel with the with the kings and the prophet, you know, some of the beginning of the prophets, and, and but then also in this genre, we have stories like Ruth and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah mm-hmm. that take us to very different parts of Israel's history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have the Book of Ruth that happens; it's kind of like that bridge between Judges and yeah. and the beginning of of Samuel and, and all that. Yeah. Ruth ends up being what the great grandmother of David or something yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. We couldn't have David, King David, without oh, right. Ruth the Moabite. And like that is an interesting thing that that story got remembered at all, rather than blotted out of like, no, we can't tell this story because it's the story where a foreigner woman is the hero, is the model who exemplifies Chesed, that that uh, covenant faithfulness and, and steadfast love that is characteristic of of no less than God. Um, she's she and Naomi are the two movers and shakers in the story, and the men in the story just kind of like, what just happened? Uh, I think I just got proposed to. <laughs> well, and, and they get tricked, right? Like, right? it's it's one of those, like, interesting things where Ruth, because of the uh, Levite the law? The laws of Leverett marriage, yeah. Yeah, uh, where she, her husband has died, so she's supposed to marry the next kinsman, who is not... Boaz, but somebody else, so she has to get Boaz to actually marry her through, like, she does this interesting... There's an interesting event that happens on a threshing floor. At this point, the podcast will will head into PG-13 territory if we we get into more detail. Yeah. So, it's, it's one of those things that she... She has to do this thing in order for Boaz to go, okay, fine, I'll go and ask at the front gate where all of the judging stuff happens with the elders mm-hmm. and see if your actual next kin's person who you should be marrying would be okay with giving up that right. And, mm-hmm. of course, that person is like, yeah, She's sure, whatever, <laughs> I don't want to marry her. And so Boaz is like, cool, we can get married now. Mm-hmm. And then she becomes yeah. the great-grandmother of yeah. King David. And there's so many things in that story that... that Assume you're familiar with the backstory and the commandments mm-hmm. from the Torah, right? So the whole notion of leveret marriage of if if, uh, if somebody dies, the next family member is supposed to marry the deceit the the widow mm-hmm. in order to continue the family line. That's sort of spelled out in the Torah, and the Book of Ruth assumes you know that. And the rules about gleaning that you were supposed to leave the edges of your fields for those who were poor and didn't own land of their own so that they could eat. And this is a story about someone who was a foreigner who was from the wrong country and. The and yet becomes not only the moral example in the story as far as the person who gets what loyalty looks like because she's faithful to Naomi, um, but this is also that um, a, a story about what happens when you when you live that kind of loyalty out in, in your life. Even though she's the one who doesn't have the DNA and the spirit and the, the biological heritage mm-hmm. uh, to do it, she lives it better. Um, so that it's a it's a subversive little story and mm. I, I think cool that that made it into the scriptures that at some point nobody nobody said this is too dangerous a story if people read this they'll discover the bible isn't just about morality or the story mm. or that it's not just about who's biologically descended from abraham and then it's important enough to be set apart as just her own story that this isn't like joshua who is just kind of it's really joshua and some other stuff <laughs> right or um it's not folded even to the judges you know, right history. It's, she gets her own she gets her own book yeah. where it's yeah it's not lost yeah. in the way that it could be if it was just a little side note in judges mm-hmm. and it seems significant too that no 
no miracles happen in the story. This, it's not a story that people remember for the fireworks. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like, well, the special effects are great. So that yeah. no, it's like this is a story about ordinary people doing relatively ordinary stuff, um, and none of it violates our usual sense of how the world works. And same thing with Esther's story too, mm-hmm. um, which happens at a whole different era when the the descendants of the Israelites have lived in exile and are now under Persian rule. But again, in a sense, it's a perfectly ordinary story, even though it happens in a royal courtroom kind of a situation. <laughs> there's the sense of, there, there, it, this is the one book in the scriptures where God isn't even mentioned. The name Yahweh isn't mentioned. There's sort of like this winking of like, of course you've been brought to this moment for such a time as this. And the assumed is, well, God has raised you up for this moment. But even God's name isn't spoken. And God doesn't speak anywhere in the story saying, um, now Esther, go do this. It's yeah. so, so uh, told from the, from the vantage point of ordinary human life. Yeah, both of these books have no miracles. Mm-hmm. One has absolutely no mention of God. The other has very little. And I'm thinking that, probably yeah. the only place that Ruth mentions God is like early on where there's a swearing an oath of as sure as Yahweh lives I will go where you yeah, go I, I, I think, think that's, that's it, it. And, and your God will be my God right 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 that right. she that's, that's, she adopts God and te- basically says I'm now part of God's chosen people right. too well, that's like she, she wills her own adoption <laughs> you know like and then the whole second half of the story yeah. God's not mentioned but these are core stories I mean you look at the book of Esther she's responsible for the Jewish people still being the you know right uh, alive being alive right. I mean there's there was almost a Holocaust before the Holocaust right. that we we speak of now, right. um, and so and, and she's a key role in that. But again, they're they're Ruth. If you look um, canonically, if you look at the order that we have the books of the Bible in, mm-hmm. Ruth kind of fits in yeah. the story right where she lands. Yes. Mm-hmm. But then you have Esther and um, Ezra and Nehemiah that come towards the end of this period that aren't there in right. same, you know, they're not in chronological order. Right, right. Um, but still very, very important books about the history of Israel. And maybe this is a moment to, to fill out the rest of that, the historical events that happen. Once you get to the period of having kings, after Solomon, the kingdom splits. They mm-hmm. undergo mm-hmm. something of a civil war, and the north becomes called Israel, and like the ten northern tribes, roughly, are the northern kingdom, and the capital there is Samaria, uh, Spoiler alert, eventually Samaritans will be from that region. Um, and then the southern kingdom is basically Judah and Benjamin, but Benjamin is so small it's just, be called, it's just called Judah. And they hold on to the, that tradition of we have the true authentic monarchy mm-hmm. and you're a bunch of pretenders in the north. And the south always has a descendant of David on the throne. They are not all great, but they, are, they can at least trace their link back to David for whatever that's worth. And the north is marked by some... Uh, I guess who were terrible and some who were not as terrible, but like nobody gets remembered in the North as being <laughs> particularly no, right. great, uh, in part because once the North splits off, the first king of the North, thinking politically in a very savvy way, says, we can't have our citizens going down to Jerusalem to worship. They'll want to reunify. We can't have that. So he builds worship sites where they worship Yahweh in golden calf form, uh, in conven- now in convenient golden calf form, at two convenient shrines in the territory of the North, Dan and Bethel, mm-hmm. and that right from the get-go, like again, you can get from a totally uh, political point of view, I get why you would want to say you don't want your citizens going back to the old country, but the writers of Kings and Chronicles are like, this was a bad move from the beginning, they never recover from this, and most of the rest of the North's history is one bloody coup after another, and uh, at most you get like three or four generations of a dynasty and then somebody else comes and wipes them out. And yet, the, the other wrinkle to all this is, as tempting as it would be to say, oh, well, the North, they're terrible, God doesn't love them anymore, they broke away from the one true people of God, 
That's not true either, and a lot of the important prophets, whom we'll talk about in the future, are sent to the north, and figures that we uh, think of as really important figures like Elijah and Elisha are sent to the north, and clearly God hasn't given up on them. The, the temptation, if all you read was the book of Kings, was everything that happens in the north is godless and terrible and wicked, would be, well, oh, God must have whittled them away, they don't count anymore, they weren't good enough. And that's not true. The, the, the Bible lives with the tension of, this was a sad thing that happened, that there was this split between north and south, and yet God didn't give up on either of them. Um, and yet both sides are sure that God, that they're the true chosen people and the others are the, mm -hmm. the, the wrong ones. Not that that's ever happened since in the rest of human history. No, okay. never. never. Um, and then once, once the kingdom splits, um, it's, it's not long before the powers that are around gobble them up. The mm -hmm. northern kingdom lasts until 722 BC when Samaria is conquered by the Assyrians. Um, and they are never heard from as a nation quite the same way ever again. The Assyrian practice when they conquered you was that they would intermix you with other people they had conquered, so they would scatter people with the idea that you would lose your, your, your identity, that you'd lose your ethnic identity, and you'd just sort of be part of the metropolitan Assyrian Empire. And so they would bring in people to the territory they'd conquered, and they'd move people away, generic, homogenous, Assyrian flavor everywhere. Um, and the northern kingdom never comes back quite in the way that it had been. Um, the southern kingdom, Judah, lasts another century and a half longer, is in a couple of waves by the Babylonians. They're the next empire on the block. Um, and they're wiped out. Jerusalem is sacked at 586 BC or 570. Um, there's a couple of stages. And the Babylonians do things differently. When they conquer you, First, they would take the best and the brightest, and they'd strip away all the treasures and monuments they could, and then they took sort of more of the, the population, leaving behind sick and old people on the land, and taking people away en masse to Babylon, um, which meant that there was this community of Jews. Uh, at this point, they start to identify not as the people of Judah, but uh, they, I, the, the identification comes to be we are the Jews, uh, which goes back to the word Judah. Judah. Um, and in a way that Babylon maybe never anticipated, they can hold on to their identity because they're there together as a group. Um, and there they do what the people did back in the slavery days in Egypt. They tell the story, they hold on to the promise, and they say, maybe God can make a new beginning. And interestingly, when they're in exile, um, they start to tell the stories not of the commandments and the punishments for breaking the commandments, but they reach further back to the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which were built on sheer promise, that weren't built on, if you're good, you get this prize, if you're bad, you don't, but were just, remember how God called Abraham out of nowhere? He hadn't done a thing. That was just sheer promise. That's who our God is. Maybe God can do that again. And that's what sustains them. So that when they do go back to the land, when eventually the Babylonians are overthrown and you get the Medes and the Persians and Cyrus, they re-inhabit the land and start to pick up where they left off, which is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah of, what do we do now that we're back? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, other things that seem important about these histories, these stories that are, that are, are worth remembering uh, when we find ourselves wading through any of those biblical books. I think ultimately that this is the history of God and God's people, mm -hmm. and the relationship and trials and tribulations that they experience together, and that... At some point, the Old Testament ends, mm -hmm. but the story doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th there were lots of points where it seemed like the story could have ended and be done. Mm -hmm. And especially at the moments when the people are convinced they can't see a way forward, God refuses to let the story be done. Um, and it takes some surprising twists and turns. And post-exile... Judah looks different than pre-exile or the days of the judges or whatever. And, that, and that's maybe important to remember, too. That 
it is maybe a recurring human tendency to want to remember some pastime in our nostalgic uh, rosy-colored lenses. That's when things are great. We've got to get back to that. That's when it was great. Make it like that again. Mm. Um, and you can't, not only because you can't unring a bell, but because the, the, the thing that God promises isn't that that the way of life will be identical one era or generation to another, but that God will be faithful, mm-hmm. even if in surprising ways. And I think, you know, today when we deal with splits and fights and, and issues between either amongst ourselves as, as Christians, as God followers, or, or even with God, to, you know, these stories are reminders, of again, of that faithfulness of God and the fact that there is something on the other side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and so... This is, there's nothing new under the sun, which is a book we'll get to here in one of our future episodes. But I mean, you know, God's been through this before. He's dealt with his people through this before. He'll deal with us, and you know what? We might not always like it, but he still he wants us to be with him. He mm-hmm. wants to have our backs. He wants us to be his followers, and will never let us go. And so that's what I hold on to in these histories, mm-hmm. is that God's always there. God always wants us. Nice. Uh, that seems like probably a decent place to end on. I'm, I, I can live with that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us for this conversation. We'll uh, pick up next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See ya. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.